Though we've been lucky enough to speak to a fair few superstars in our relatively short run here on Soundtracking, this might just be the first time we've welcomed a genuine grandee to the programme. Michael Apted is a writer, producer and director who's been involved in film and television for well over 50 years. His credits include everything from British soap opera Coronation Street and the revolutionary documentary series Up to critically acclaimed movies such as Gorillas in the Mist and Enigma. He's also had the honour of directing a Bond film, which is no bad thing to have on one's CV. In recognition to his contribution to cinema, he was elected President of the Directors Guild of America back in 2003. I'm Edith Bowman, and you're listening to the podcast in which the biggest names on screen discuss music. Michael's latest offering is Unlocked, a supremely entertaining thriller starring Numi Rapace, Orlando Bloom, Tony Collette, Michael Douglas and John Malkovich. That, I think we can all agree, is some cast. And what with it being a genre piece, it provided the perfect opportunity to explore the particular demands he deemed fit to make of composer Stephen Barton the score. Michael, congratulations on Unlocked. I, I thoroughly enjoyed the film. I kind of just kept guessing the whole time and you kind of find that less and less, I think, when you go to the cinema now. You guess too soon. Yeah. So thank you for that. I thoroughly enjoyed it. Um, this is a podcast where I talk to filmmakers about music and their relationship with music, both within the work that they create and the experiences that they've had along the way. And when I look at the list of composers that you've worked with over the years, yeah. you've been in with a great Staggering bunch, that. haven't you? Yeah. But with this, let's start with, with Unlocked in terms of Stephen Barton and why he was the right man for the job and what you required of him and how important was music to this particular film? Well, I think it's important to every film. I think with a thriller, it has to help drive the film, so there has to be a lot of it. So it can't be too distinctive, otherwise if you keep hearing the same theme or the same groupage of notes and all that sort of thing, I, I don't think that's helpful. So. You want a lot of music, but you don't want to get bored by it. Sometimes you don't even want to notice it, but it does lay the kind of foundations of the emotion of the scene without you realizing that it is. In this case, I wanted someone who could give me a lot of music in the film without making it boring. line isn't it as well because the music is so emotive yeah. it can almost fight against the scene in terms of what you're seeing the music's yeah. telling you something different it's so precise isn't it such a precise also, art. I mean you know, what you said before I mean what has attracted to me when I read the script that there was a real page turner that you really didn't know what was going to happen next mm. and then when it did happen I thought oh but you never thought this is rubbish how this doesn't work you don't feel you've cheated the audience but you know music can also give things away yeah so I had to be careful that we didn't the music didn't run ahead of the story because if the composer is telling us something about the story i.e. that we should believe this character or we shouldn't believe this character then all your hard work is kind of tossed out the window so 
it has to be you know very restrained it is without being in a sense committed to it i can help you i've had my trouble since the war clearly not so well adjusted but i'm combat tested and right now i'm thinking i'm the only friend you got go home jack i am home where the fuck are you? Any idea? You know who I loved in this film, and he's not in it that much, was John Malkovich. Yes, I well, just he's... thought the power of that man on a screen is just incredible. Yeah, it is. I mean, he's a very good man, and he's a very serious guy, and he takes it seriously. And he has all, all sort of interesting quirks <laughs> that he handwrites the scene out. The way he learns the lines is to write it down in a notebook. Because, I mean, he's very good on lines. And I said, how do you remember this? And he says he, he does that. So I thought that was interesting. But uh, what's lovely about him is he's a real team player. He doesn't do his role and then go off into his trailer and stuff. He hangs around. You know, he talks to people. He's on the set all the time. And, mm. and Michael Douglas was the same. And I love that. You know, it makes us all part of everybody is interested in what everybody else is doing. Yeah. It was great with John. John would just hang around. And he, he's such a subtle actor. You hardly realize it when he's doing it. Then when you look at it afterwards and where you're editing it, you see how complex he is. Like all great film actors, a lot of it is internal. Mm. You know, a lot of it, you, the audience, have to do the work. It's not someone telling you who they are or what they are, whatever. There's something slightly mysterious about it, which is very challenging for an audience. They don't even realize it, but it makes you hang on every word. It makes you want to watch everything he does because you're trying to figure him out and he's not giving much away. And especially in a thriller like this, when anybody could be the bad guy or the bad girl or whatever, it's fun to have an actor who can deliver emotion and narrative, you know, in a very undercooked way yeah. rather than shout it out at you. How the hell could you miss her? <laughs> Do you really want to go there? You ran an illegal op on my soil, and when it all goes sideways, you come crying. Emily. MI5's not your mother. Yes, you're right. Do you know how I know that, Emily? Because my mother could have handled the fucking grab. remember films that for you, you you recognize music and the importance of it or you remember the music from it well, honestly 
Not really, because music's always had its place. I've got cues here for you, to be honest, in terms of people and, yeah, who, and films who did and stuff. This music for Gorillas in the Mist. Gorillas in the Mist was the wonderful Maurice Jarre. Yeah, well, there's a story there. So, <laughs> with the music, that was kind of tricky because it needed to be organic and give you a feeling of the place and whatever, but I didn't think it could be pure African music. So he did a lot of research into African music, especially in that area of the world, and he did a score based on that. Yeah. I remember I, I showed the movie to the studio, and in fact it was two studios, two studios had backed it, and they said, that's very good, Michael, when are you doing the music? I thought, oh my God. <laughs> I said, it's there, they said, what? And in fact, we'd probably gone too far. We had been so anxious to be authentic mm. and to be respectful to yeah. the culture and all that that we'd kind of somewhat missed the point of the music because for all I'm saying about it should be understated, it still has to drive the emotion of the film. to be a little bit more conventional so sometimes you can overdo authenticity <laughs> yeah. to the point of where is it where is the music <laughs> in terms of the, the iconic films that he worked in Lawrence of Arabia yeah. Dodge Chivago I know wow I know yeah, he's, that's wonderful isn't yeah. it what these guys do
you know, I can hear them in my head and yeah. I can see those it sweeping is, scenes yeah. in my head as well. I've worked with a lot of good musicians. Yeah. Because, uh, again, you know, it's a real gift. It's a singular gift, doing film scores, I think. You know, I mean, people like John Williams and all that. I mean, look what he did for those franchises, for Star Wars and all of them. I mean, he managed to create iconic chords and whatever. Um, I mean, as well as keep the movie going. So, I mean, it's the obligations are so varied on, on yeah. composers. I could only speak in great generalities about music. I mean, I can't say, well, let's think about Beethoven's sixth <laughs> emperor at the end. Of Me too. So it's annoying to people, but it's one of those things that when you listen to stuff, then you kind of get a feeling. And I'm not frightened to embarrass myself and say, you know, this is too lyrical or this is just boring or, or whatever. Because I think you have to be direct with people because, you know, they have their own language, their own terminology. And it's one of the difficulties of being a director. You have to know about lots of things, but you don't know very much about it. You don't try and do everybody's job, whether yeah. it's the production designer or the editor or the costumer or whatever. You know a certain amount, but I think it's wise to give people air, space to breathe, to bring their skills to it and not pretend that you know everything. Thing. Particularly with composers, I can only tell them whether I think it's appropriate or I like it. I can't tell them what's wrong with it or what's right about it. I just have to say, this works very well and this doesn't work, and I'll say, why? I say, well, it's too intrusive, or you know, I have to speak in staggering cliches. And, <laughs> well, you do. I remember a great production designer, Paul Silbert, said, don't be afraid, Michael. You have to speak in cliches to us. And we, our skill is to turn that cliche into something real and original. So I was pleased to hear that. <laughs> you talk about John Williams, and of course you worked with the other famous John when it comes to composers, John Barry on Enigma. Yes. And also worked on a Bond film as well. Yeah. When you're stepping into something like a Bond film that obviously has that existing yes, yeah. framework to a soundtrack, yeah already does that make it problematic is it no, fun it's a is challenge it? i mean it's something you have to do i mean you have to deliver the iconic messages of whatever you're dealing with, whether it's a bond film or something you've got mm. to do that David Arnold, who I loved a lot, he's a young man. Yeah, he's great. Very, you know, modern and, and all that sort of stuff. And you know, he knew full well what the obligation is. You can't say, let's do something completely fresh here. 
You can't. You've got to be smart about it. And again, you've got to understand what has to be delivered. You know, certain awful gags have to be delivered. The theme has to be delivered. Great action has to be delivered. And you know, you just have to know if you take the job on, you've got to respect what you have to deliver. Mm. You try and make it fresh, and you try and make the acting or the scenes better than they've ever been before in any other Bond, and all that sort of crap, which you. Have believe you can do, which of course you can't, but you try. But uh, you know, one of the secrets of doing them is, is to know what is obligatory and what isn't obligatory. Yeah. You had a great Bond themed song as well with Shirley Manson. The world yeah. is not enough. I That's loved right. that. Yeah. Very good. How involved are you allowed to get in that? Are you fully well, I, involved? I mean, in I liked Garbage. <laughs> that sounds funny. So, um, but I liked them, and he liked them too. Yeah. And so he went and approached them and, and all that. And that's as much as I did. I just liked the, the tone of what they did. And I thought, given how much we have to deliver that is iconic, you know, they could do that. documentaries as well is that a different approach 
Yes, but again, it has to be equally organic. I don't know how much I score documentaries. It's usually very, very simple and usually has to be integral into what the subject is or where you are with it. It can't stand out as something that's contrived or artificial. It has to be really organic, whether it's music of the place, music of the time or whatever. You have to be careful because you can't tread over a line which puts it into a kind of middle ground of quasi-documentary mm -hmm. or, or whatever. But, you know, my experience in documentary really sort of governed everything I do. You know, I, I like emotion in film, you know, in this too, with Orlando, for example. I mean... I liked him, he's done a lot of films, and I saw a film he'd done in South Africa when he was himself. Mm. And, and so with Orlando, it was for him to deliver himself, and he got that immediately. He gave me a very rough time saying, what's this line mean? Should I say that? I can't say that line, do another line. But he was saying, okay, you want me to be myself, then you've got to help me. You've got to give me the material to be myself. Mm -hmm. I would never say that or never do that. And I think it worked with him. I think he's very, very good in the film. But doing documentaries when you're trying to feel people out all the time and see what they have, and it's just, for me, that's like working with actors as well. It's yeah. to see what they've got and how they can relate to the material and how you can coalesce them with the material. There must be some kind of record that you hold as well for the most returning TV series of all time in terms of that programme about the children. Oh, right. The seven, seven Up, ups, yeah. Yes. The latest was 56 Up, I yes. believe. and I had a meeting for 63 No, up. did yeah, you? Yeah, wow. That's wonderful. Okay. What a wonderful thing to be part of. I know, I know. And I mean, I don't know how much you want to talk about it, but it was accidental in a way. Was it? Like all great things, they were an accident. <laughs> no, we, we set out, we were asked to do a film in 1963 and I was just the junior researcher on it you know about the social state of Great Britain how class ridden was it and rather than have a load of politicians or journalists or whatever come in and pontificate about it why don't we get a group of seven-year-olds to tell us what their dreams and ambitions are and we did that and of course it was electrifying I mean it shook the nation it had a huge impact that first one and it was supposed to be just a one-off film and we didn't take a tremendous amount of trouble choosing the people we just needed certain from the different classes, from the working class, from the middle class, from the upper class. So it was all done very, very quickly, but it was a brilliant idea. Not our idea, but it was a brilliant <laughs> idea. And then when we saw it, it created such a stir that we thought, well, well, we should go back. And so we went back, and it took us quite a long time to figure it out, I have to tell you, which is shocking when you think about it. But I went back and I did 14, which is a bit more difficult because they weren't quite so cute, but you could see <laughs> yeah. the power of it. You know, I thought, this is a lifetime's work. Yeah. You know? And so I've always been there for it, you know, although I spent a lot of time in America working and all that. I've, you know, it's been such an important part of my life, of my career as well, because it's generated a whole new realm of documentaries. I mean, you know, the kind of longitudinal documentary and all this kind of stuff, but uh, it was a gift. The idea of looking at a bunch of people over time and how they evolve, that was a really nifty idea. I didn't want to do it when I was 14, and I I'd never do it now, but here I am. Hopefully I'll reach my half century next year and, and I shall bow out. I suppose I have this ridiculous sense of loyalty to it, even though I hate it, and that's just such a contradiction, isn't it? <laughs> I don't want to answer those kind of questions. The first seven years, gone extremely quickly. 
We've just grown together. I don't think you really notice it. I mean, you still think you're the same. It's when, maybe when you pull a muscle, <laughs> that just reminds you that you're getting older. I always liked older people as I was growing up, funny enough. My ambition as a scientist is to be more famous for doing science than for being in this film, but unfortunately, Michael, it's not going to happen. Michael, up there is my old flats where I used to live in. I lived up there for 28 years. The memories I've got in here is unbelievable. <laughs> it's how a person, any person, how they change. It's not an absolute accurate picture of me, but it's a picture of somebody. I also think it's inspired certain filmmakers in terms of their political, social voice and the way that they make films as well. You know, you look at how I, Daniel Blake, how yeah. successful that was for Ken this year. Yeah. You know, yeah. real people, real situations. Yeah. It well, really he's, a, he's a great mentor to me. I mean, I've hardly ever met him, but his work has had a huge influence on me. When I was starting in the 60s, you know, he was at the height of his power. But, you know, I had a big success when I went to America with Loretta Lynn, with Coal Miner's daughter. Yeah. And his voice was right in my brain the whole time, that whether you're making a film in Sidcup or you go up north to make a film, you, you put that place on film. to do this film and I used the people of the Appalachians in the film. I shot the whole thing there. There was only three actors in the film. Everyone else was from that area and it gave the film a voice. It gave mm. the film an authentic voice which made it very successful because no one had ever done that. There'd been other films made about the Appalachians but not in that way. You know, I just got that from Loach really watching his stuff, how he gave films a sense of place and the geography of his films wasn't just the natural geography, it was the geography of the people, put the people in the film. So, I mean, he had a profound effect on me because that film really launched me in America. And I've done lots of films where I've gone into strange places and all the time, because of him, because of what he did about it and how it worked for him, I always use local people in it. With that film in particular, in terms of approaching how you score something like that and yeah. trying to keep authenticity within the score, similarly with what you were talking about with Gorillas in the Mist, yeah. I imagine. But that, was so, that wasn't so difficult. In fact, it was kind of a weird experience because we hired a very distinguished composer to do it. And he came in on day one and it was a disaster. And I just had to say to him, this isn't going to work. So what we did, the music editor went down to Nashville, got a group of musicians together, and they improvised the score in a studio. Wow. I mean, it was a ballsy thing to, for <laughs> yeah. me to do, but I knew it was a disaster. I mean, it was a lovely score, but it had nothing to do with what the film was about, mm. especially when the film was about music. Wonderful. It's all a learning thing, you know. Happy accidents Happy almost accident, again, yeah. You have to be brave in a way when you see something that's wrong. You know, you have to yeah. stop it. And then when you have an answer, make it authentic. Yes, use that music. You think, well, why didn't I think of that a year ago? Before pulling, putting this poor man through doing a, a score for a film, which was never going to work. Well, a lot of things have changed since way back then. And it's so good to be back home again. 
What are your memories of, of making Inspirations? Well, that was interesting because there were the two films back to back. One was Inspirations and one was Me and Isaac Newton. Because I was interested in how people get ideas, how people create and whatever. And so I decided to do a film with six artists and six scientists. And it was fascinating because the scientists were much better at it. <laughs> because th their lives are spent trying to raise money, trying to show people that they're on some path of scientific study to get the money to do it. So they've always got to be figuring out what they're doing and why they're doing it. Whereas artists, and I'm not saying it's secondary in any sense, but theirs is more inspirational. It's difficult to trace, it's difficult to track down how they get this idea, and it's, it's kind of a clumsy question to them, and they usually answer it clumsily. And they don't like answering it most no, of the time no. as well. I did Bowie, and it, he, just, he gave me one morning in the studio, and he said, I'm going to write a song for you. And he said, I start by take the, the today's new, and he did all this, he said, I take the New York Times, we were in New York, that's why. And he said, I cut it up, boom, boom, and I take sentences out of it, and I put these sentences on my computer, and then I start mixing the sentences up. And then I begin to see a kind of pattern of words. And then I put it to music. And I said, what? And this is what he did. I wow. mean, he did it for about three hours, and he came up with a song. Fry Metals becomes Fry The Metals. Release Rib Bookman becomes Release The Bookman. Top that kills himself becomes the top kills himself. So, such and such, like top the order, dead men medal, release the admiral. Then I sort of just went from there into release the bookman, release the admiral, fry the medals, hoist the mainsail. Only because it sort of felt like that kind of patterning, um, which would take me to a kind of a chorus area. Dead men don't talk, but they do. Dead men don't talk, but they do. Dead men don't talk. It's almost like a, a technological dream in its own way. It creates the images from a dream state without having to go through the boredom and going to sleep all night or get stoned out of your head. Um, and, and it will give me access to areas that I wouldn't be thinking about otherwise during the day because it'll prompt feelings and ideas that <clears throat> in the natural course of events I probably would have uh, um, skirted around or just not been involved in. There's almost a science to that, isn't well, there? Yeah, yeah. There is. I mean, I mean, that was fascinating, but artists find it very difficult, in my experience, to explain why they do this piece of sculpture or why this particular painting. I mean, I had great artists and yeah. they couldn't really explain it. Can yeah. you explain how you do it, if someone asks well, you? Because you're an artist. Well, yeah, but I mean, I, I, I can explain, and I've explained it a bit to you, that what I look for in, in a script, whether it's bond or something is some emotional level to it mm. and I can tap that emotional level and express that emotional level to the actors and whatever 
and see whether they can deliver it to me in, in an authentic way, not in a theatrical mm. way. So I always know what the tone should be. I mean, sometimes it's a real overreach if you're doing Bond or Narnia or something like that. But in everything else, it's to kind of get at a kind of emotional truth in it, which I think, even if it's a comedy, I mean, it gives the audience something to hang on to. A film has always got to have a journey, whether it's John Belushi or whatever it is. When you Lawrence said Olivier. when you said comedy, John Belushi yeah, just popped exactly. into my head. Yeah. So you have to tap into it, and, and you, so you have to become not their best friends. I don't mean that, but the re rehearsal period mm. has to be very kind of informal in a sense, not just doing the lines, but informal, and it can be very tiring. So I, I, I do know when I'm out of my depth, and I do know, you know, when I'm playing my cards properly. What was Belushi like? He's the funniest man I have ever been with. <laughs> he would, he would sit here and you would be crying with laughter. <laughs> he was also a child, you know. He was very, I can't say immature. That's so judgmental. But I mean, he liked to push me. He always wanted to show up late, so I would shout at him. It's like a, a, a naughty kid in a school who mm. gets comes late and the teacher shouts at him, and then in some way. That helps him. Yeah. I mean, he would show up late and I'd scream at him and all this because we were inevitably up some fucking mountain or something <laughs> like that. So in one, in one ways, he was just inspirational and he was childlike. And, mm. and so it wasn't really a terrible, terrible surprise when what happened. I mean, he yeah. did one film after mine and then he died. But he was the most engaging and truly funny man, a great mimic and a great storyteller. You would be crying with laughter. <laughs> what lovely memories to have. Um, yeah, absolutely. I could sit and chat to you all day, but there all are the a queue time. of people waiting oh, to chat okay. to you. It's an absolute pleasure. Okay. Thank you so did we much. Do all right? I think we did okay, all right. Cool. You? I don't know your needs. <laughs> <laughs> needs are for fully fulfilled. Thank okay, you so much. Right. Real pleasure to meet you. Go Thank on, you. what you do I wake up shining just being with you knowing you're beside me knowing you're alright makes it so easy to get Continental Divide starring John Belushi that's Never Say Goodbye by Helen Reddy rounding off this latest episode of Soundtracking with Michael Apted my huge thanks to Michael for taking the time to talk to us what an unassuming visionary he is Unlocked is on general release now and is a hugely entertaining way to spend a couple of hours you can subscribe to this podcast via iTunes or head to edithbowman.com where you'll also have easy access to all of our previous episodes. 
Please, if you can, follow us on Facebook, Instagram and Twitter. We are at Soundtracking UK. And be sure to tell your friends about us if you like what you hear. Next up, the man who brought us Mrs Brown, Shakespeare in Love, the best exotic marigold hotel and his new film, Miss Sloan. Director, John Madden. I very much look forward to the pleasure of your company then. Thank you. 